The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We turn to Matthew chapter 5. We've been in Matthew the last few weeks for looking at the nativity of Christ in chapters 1 and 2, but now we jump over a few chapters and come to Matthew's remarkable statement from Jesus of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. As I sat down a couple months ago with our associate pastors and we said, well, you guys are going to be preaching in January and February, and uh, what, what should we plan for the next thing? And I let them come forward with this that they desired to uh, deal with the Sermon on the Mount. I was very happy for that and happy to see this again. I have preached through it in this congregation, but it's been about 10 years by my estimate since we did that. And the material is so important and so basic that uh, to think that it would be 10 years and a child could go through junior high and high school and not confront this material in our church Uh, makes me realize this is something we need to do. So I am proposing to just introduce uh, the whys and wherefores of the Sermon on the Mount without really even dipping into the text that much today, but to give give you an introductory base, and the associates will be leading you into this, and I'll pick it up when I come back. So uh, knowing how long it takes to work through this material, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount right up till you'll look out the windows and there will not be snow, I can guarantee you, unless it's snowing on Mother's Day or after, uh, it will not be winter. Listen to God's Word, Matthew 5. Jesus is the spokesman here as the disciple Matthew, by the reminders of others and by the Holy Spirit's guidance, gave us this wonderful sermon, which is what it is. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Scripture says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. I asked the question to lead into this today, just how 
does a Christian who knows Jesus as Lord stand out from the general population? You know, we might have invented or, or perhaps picked up from an earlier century some form of ID, one of those stick-on badges that never seem to stick on my suit coat. I go to a seminar and the badge is on the floor in about a half an hour. I don't think that would have worked to identify me as a Christian. We could all have said we will wear gold crosses boldly displayed and people will know we are Christians by our crosses. Well, you know that you can gain clues as to whether someone belongs to the Lord by their behavior, by their basic integrity. Are they truthful people? Uh, Do they have genuine motives? Do they display a kind of winsome honesty? And you say, well, maybe that would indicate that we're Christians and you'd be on the right track. But the fact of the matter is there are honest pagans and there are truthful and kind people who do not know Christ out there in the world. So that is not an absolute identification badge. If we are indeed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed by God's saving grace in our lives and being changed day by day into the image of Christ, then over time there should be a kind of total identification about us in behavior, in speech, in trustworthiness, in value to our employers and to the society in general. People should be able to recognize Christians by outward behavior and attitudes and speech. And I believe Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount primarily to establish in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew that these things can be found in us and must be cultivated by us as God is working them out by His Holy Spirit. Now, the world, many at least in the world that know a little bit about the Bible, know that the Sermon on the Mount is a place of great morality, teaching of morality. And there are some that surely think that's all it is. They think, well, here's where we find the golden rule. Do unto others as they would do unto you. And, and numerous other things like that that, are, that the world says, why, that's good teaching. I certainly am in favor of that. And so you get sometimes, I've personally heard it, and I know it's a thought that people have even if they don't necessarily speak it aloud, the rather silly statement that you will hear from somebody who knows a little bit about the Bible and says, look, I, I don't truck with being in a church and organized Christianity and all that. I don't need that. I just try to live my life by the Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard that? Hands, please. Sure you have. More of you have heard it than you have hands up, I know. I just try to lead my life by the Sermon on the Mount. Uh-huh. That's interesting. If I hear that from someone, I say, well, here, here's a Bible. Let's take a look for a minute. I want to ask you about the end of chapter 5, the very last verse that I didn't read this morning. This is the last word before it goes into the second chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. 548, Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. My friend, living by the Sermon on the Mount, how's your perfection? How are you doing? Do you really feel that's what you're accomplishing or that's what you're able to accomplish? You see, there's a whole dynamic beneath this three-chapter sermon that is totally misunderstood by those who think 
that Matthew 5 through 7 is just like the New Testament repetition of the Ten Commandments. Here's a whole list of behaviors or rules, and, and just check them off and do the best you can with each of them, and God will find your life acceptable enough that He'll count you as a saved person someday. Uh-uh. That is not here in any form whatsoever. There's something else going on here, and I'll get into it in just a minute. But the best way to enter it is to ask this question. To whom is the Sermon on the Mount spoken in the first place? And to whom is it spoken today? To answer that, I take you back. Well, really, we talked a few weeks ago about the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1, and I showed you in that how the very beginning of this gospel was trying to set the coming of Jesus Christ in the line of descent from the great king David. And the genealogy attempted and succeeded to show that legally, at least, Jesus was in the line of King David and that he would be, of course, a greater king. Now we look at something like chapter 4, 17, before what I read in chapter 5. And you see there, from this time in the early ministry, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I could carry this case out quite a ways just in material from Matthew. 4.23 says he went about preaching the good news of the kingdom. Jesus was representing the spiritual rule of God in a true kingdom with himself as visible king. And he was gathering subjects of that kingdom of God which didn't have territorial boundaries or castle fortifications or armies to march from it or anything, but was nevertheless a real, already present kingdom. And he was ready to say that you enter that kingdom by repentance, realizing you were sinfully parted from God, and by faith as you come and bow before him as your Lord and monarch of your life. So it is this this framework of the kingdom that is in place as we come to chapter 5. And Jesus is speaking to disciples, now read in that, kingdom subjects. People who were coming into or had come into the kingdom. 5.1 tells us who was this spoken to. He sat down on the mountain. By the way, it was, you know, you have to understand the mountains that were around the Sea of Galilee. I have, I, I chuckle, we have friends from Lidditz who I now live in Lidditz, but people remind me on the one side of Lidditz, if you're coming from Rothsville, kind of uh, down towards East Main Street in, in Lidditz, you pass sort of an up and down place. How many of you know that's called Kel- Keller's Mountain? My wife and I go by and we go, where's the mountain? You know, this does not represent a mountain from any mountains we've seen in the world. It's a nice little hill. Well, that's really where Jesus was. It was a mountain in grandiose description. It was a shallow hill near Capernaum, just north of the Sea of Galilee, where we believe this was spoken. You may have visited the place on a trip to Israel where they believe that this happened. But there on that hillside, his disciples came to him. Now, we already know that not all of the original 12 were even gathered yet. In fact, chapter 9 of Matthew shows that Matthew, the author of this gospel, was gathered 
to the disciples a bit later than at least if we, what we have here is chronological development, and we believe it is, Matthew, you can look in chapter 9 and see his story of being called. And others of the disciples were not yet called, but the early disciples were. And they were very incomplete in who they were as disciples. They didn't understand the cross. They didn't have a clue about the resurrection. They didn't have any idea about Jesus ascending into heaven or returning in historic glory. So they were very early disciples, but they had already pledged themselves to seek the Lord He said, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. These early disciples pledged to him in some way to his kingdom were the ones to whom this was spoken. Now, that right away tells us that this is not a book of morality uh, parables to simply indoctrinate people from the world at large who maybe had no specific interest in Jesus at all and say, here, I'm giving you a whole set of rules. Obey these rules and you'll make God happy. No. He was speaking to kingdom disciples and saying, you are already belonging to me. I have put my spirit in you. I've given you a new life. And since you are already a disciple, you have a new birth, a new power, and a new standing before God. In this, grow and seek after me, and you will see great changes happening in your life. I was a teenager in the 1960s. Remember the day I turned 13. Seemed like a big day. It doesn't seem so big today, but I thought, wow, I'm a teenager. And the 1960s was a tumultuous time to be for anybody of any age, but maybe particularly for a teenager. It was my generation that that dropped out and, and, uh, you know, took the trips on drugs. I did not take those trips, but many I knew did, uh, who changed their whole lifestyle, their clothing, you know, bell-bottom jeans. What happened to those? They were great. You could put them on with your shoes on. That was what was good about them. And, and, you know, ragged jeans, tie-dyed clothes. We invented what was called the counterculture, if you know that term. Within American society, suddenly moms and dads saw their kids turning into something very different. And their attitudes, their attitudes toward the government, towards authority, towards parents, changing. And it was like there was this whole society within a society And the other society called them hippies or all kinds of derogatory terms. The counterculture. I submit to you that while Christians aren't taking drug drug trips or necessarily wearing ragged bell-bottoms, we are a counterculture. Jesus was addressing the counterculture of his disciples, those who had an allegiance to him, not to the wider society. They were people who already were tasting a little bit of what it meant to swim upstream against society's mainline behavior. They were not conformed to this world. They were already being transformed, Romans 12 says, by the renewing of their minds. Now, it's vital for you to see this, that Jesus is speaking to those who have begun discipleship with him. And if we take teaching of the rest of Scripture together, that means some new birth of faith has happened in them. A new, new reality has dawned on them. A new power has taken possession of them. 
And he invites them to rethink almost everything, to rethink what kind of character, you know, wins in this world because the whole list of those beatitudes, which you'll be hearing work through in weeks to come, are things that people say, why, those who are meek, those who, who are poor in spirit, those who are merciful, these people are the losers. Jesus says, no, no. These are the winners. These are the people who show that they belong to me. And then he moves through how the society has already begun to persecute such people, how they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, how they have a different attitude towards anger and lust and divorce and retaliation to enemies and many other things, many very practical things, that they hold on to their money with a looser grip and use it for God's purposes. And all through these three chapters, he's describing the counterculture, those who swim upstream, not simply here is a rule book of morality for society in general. That isn't possible. Secondly, then, I ask, why is the Sermon on the Mount especially needed today? Many of you may know there's a polling organization run not by the Pew Charitable Trusts or some of the other common names you associate with, with polling, but a man named George Barna started a polling organization that looks primarily at religious behavior and at Christianity in particular. And he's taken polls now for many years. And one of the sweeping things that Barna consistently finds and has trumpeted many times, and I think he's certainly on track, is that those in America who claim to be born-again people really do not look very different in their behavior within the culture than those who would not make that claim of a new birth in Christ. It's almost as if he's saying, look, these folks marched down to Cabela's and said, look, uh, instead of giving me the camouflage outfit for deer hunting, give me the spiritual camouflage outfit so I will blend right in with our society. That's what I want. I want to blend in. I don't want to stick out. People who stick out get arrows shot at them, taunts, or, or we are, you know, disclaimed or shunned by others. And we don't want that. Barna's surveys tell us time after time, Christians pull back from that. And those areas that might make them different in some way in their cultural behavior, they have toned down very much, especially in the most recent generation. So they won't look any different. Christians have said, well, in fact, here's what we think. Worship. We have to remake our worship because what we don't want is to have a worship service that, that looks to people like something very different from what they enjoy when they walk into a theater or a concert or a drama. Uh, we want the worship service to be comfortable for worldly people. So let's ask, let's poll the worldly people and see what they want a worship service to look like, and we'll remake it. Possibly one of the greatest sins of the church today. We've let the world call the tune about worship. We've not considered the fact that God's Word says that in 1 Corinthians you read how people will come into your worship and they will say, wow, surely God is in this place. And they will fall down before something that is foreign to their society that they don't see in the theater, they don't see in the drama or the concert. Well, Jesus taught that there must be distinct, observable differences in Christian thinking 
and behavior. Otherwise, we've allowed the nose of the camel, and in fact maybe the whole hump of the camel, to push its way into the tent of the Christian church and the Christian life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of England, a preacher who died in 1981, I would name him the best English-language preacher of the 20th century. Lloyd-Jones wrote the premier book on the Sermon on the Mount. If you're interested, look for Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones. He's a Welshman. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He said, We need the message of Matthew 5 through 7 because, I quote, the most obvious feature of the life of Christians today is their superficiality. Superficiality. It's all on the surface, folks. It hasn't sunk in. It hasn't changed the heart. It hasn't changed the worldview. It hasn't changed the way we speak. It hasn't changed the amusements we seek after. It hasn't changed our attitudes towards sexual morality. It's superficial. Lloyd-Jones said that 55 years ago. I wish I could tell you things had improved since then. They surely have not. I meet people who assume that the Bible and its morality, the things it teaches a Christian to do, the whole, the whole material of the Sermon on the Mount, they would say, well, that's a good place to start. And I look that over and I see, well, okay, now what works for me? What am I comfortable with? And I talk to God and say, well, God, you know, I'm not comfortable with that part there in chapter 7, or this part over here is awfully challenging. Let's just glide past that. And they negotiate with God how they will stand in their morality and their testimony and their presentation of character to the world. God says, I'm calling my people, my kingdom people, to be holy people. Many of you, if not most of you, have a wrong understanding of the word holy. You think that means goody-goody. You think that means I'm better than everybody else. I'm above everybody else. You think that means artificially pious or sanctimonious. The word holy doesn't mean any of those things. It primarily means set apart, visibly, tangibly different. Set apart from the standards of this present world age. Now, you should know that in the Old Testament, this was what God was constantly contending for with the people of Israel. He was saying, I called you to be a different nation. And if you would be mine and be holy as I am holy, you would conquer all these nations. You will stand out all these. They have bigger armies. They have tanks. They have atomic weapons. You will conquer them because you will be mine. And your holiness will be the conquest. Well, you know that Israel was always reacting and saying, we don't want to be different. It's not any fun to be different. Those Canaanite girls over there are pretty good-looking girls. We want to mix up with them. God says don't marry them. Well, you know, there's only so much difference we can tolerate. And you end up with a statement like Ezekiel 20, verse 32, where Israel is, in a sense, talking back to God, and they say, let us be like other nations who worship wood and stone. Really? Let us be like other nations who worship wood and stone. We don't want the living God. He's a tough God. He's a demanding God. He's an all-or-nothing God. We don't want to be different. Just let us blend in. 
And that is, of course, the tendency of many nominal Christians whom Lloyd-Jones called superficial in our own age. Think about it a minute. Are you such a person? Is your Christianity skin deep or hardly even that? James tells us that faith that is not accompanied by action is actually dead. Real conversion to Christ is more than just mouthing the words of an orthodox creed. Yes, we believe in a creed. We believe a creed is simply the theology taught by the Bible. Yes, we talk about Reformed faith, and we believe that's nothing but theology taught in the Bible. But it isn't simply a matter of saying, aha, I've got my Reformed theology down perfect. Every sentence, I know how to to put the Reformed nuance. I know what Luther would have said. I know what Calvin would have said. I know what the Westminster Confession said. My theology is impeccable. Let me tell you, you might be able to say that and not be converted by the power of God and not be a child of God at all in Jesus Christ. God intends that when He converts a soul, the Holy Spirit will go to work, and that person will begin to stand out because cultural blending in has a deadening spiritual effect. And I want to tell you, as you see us in weeks to come going through the Sermon on the Mount, I can already predict The other men are going to be preaching, but I know what they will say. They will point out the contrasts between being controlled by this world and being controlled by the Spirit of God. Now, thirdly, I ask this question. How can anyone actually hope to fulfill the exalted standards of the Sermon on the Mount? To focus that, I point once more to a verse that's at the end of chapter 5. I didn't read it in my text that I read, but I pointed to you. It's the last verse of chapter 5, a summary statement before Jesus moves on to some other things. He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I used to read that as a youth and say, what in the world? Perfection? I mean, I was reasonably happy in high school if the test came back and said 93 or 94, I knew I would not be perfect very often. My wife was the contrary person who expected 100 and was not happy with anything less, and she often got it too, as a matter of fact. But I was reconciled to be, okay, make the honor roll and, you know, be able to get into college, but A- minus was all right. But I read Matthew 5:48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What in the world is this? How does a human being attain perfection? Well, here you see, folks, the standard of the Sermon on the Mount, and you have to understand this or you'll miss it entirely. Let's say you were a pole vaulter in high school and you aspired to go on, and maybe you even got the interest of a track coach who wanted to bring you to a fairly elite school like Penn State and okay, we're going to give you a scholarship to be a pole vaulter at Penn State. And you thought, good, you know, hey, I'm pretty good. I've cleared 19 feet. I think I'm going to be a pretty good collegiate pole vaulter, and who knows, I might go on to the Olympics. Well, then you're informed the day you show up at Penn State on the track team, hey, did you know what the new standard is to be uh, elected to the Olympic pole vaulting team? 99 feet. What? Are you kidding me? 19 is extremely tough. 99? You must be nuts. 
you would give up pole vaulting if that was the standard you had to make. But you see, that's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. It's holding this impossible-sounding standard to you and saying, if you're going to work your life and operate your life entirely by the law of God alone, it's going to defeat you, it's going to crush you, because nothing less than perfection is required. Well, thanks be to God, what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect balancing of the law of God with the grace of God. You see, I've often emphasized in our new members class, if you've been in that class in the last year or so, I'm sure you probably remember, and maybe if you've been longer, you still remember, that I emphasize a great deal the short passage in Philippians 2, 12, and 13 that chimes in so well to help us get into the depth of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is the place where Paul is saying to this church that's beloved to him in Philippi, look, I'm not going to probably visit you again. You're going to have to go on in your Christian life without me. Here's my advice. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. You should have these verses memorized. Really, this is as important to your life as John three sixteen. Paul writes and says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, There's work for me to do. I have to pay attention. I have to focus. I have to pray. I have to read Scripture. It sounds like a lot of law. Can I do it? Well, I didn't finish the sentence. For it is God who works in you both to will and to perform. That is the perfect New Testament balancing of law and grace. And that is what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. God raises up a standard. He says, look, you've got to be like me. You've got to be set apart. You've got to be perfect. That's what I require to enter my heaven. But guess what? My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace comes in and supplies what you cannot possibly provide. And what we find, of course, is that the perfection God requires is His gift to us at the cross of Jesus. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. He invites us, inherit the fulfillment that I have worked for you. God's grace will carry you through law that would crush you and kill you if you had to obey it on your own. Another key passage, not of Scripture, but of church history, comes from the great Augustine. Certainly, I think I say without fear, the greatest and most eloquent Christian who lived from the time of the Apostle Paul until the Reformation was Augustine, around 500 A.D. Read about Augustine if you don't know anything about him. This man who was once quite pagan in his own ways, and God wonderfully transformed him in a conversion said one time in a prayer something very memorable. He said, Lord, command of me anything that you will. That's a bold prayer. Command of me anything that you will. But, Lord, enable everything that you command. You see, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We turn here and say God is commanding things of us that are high, that are difficult, that are noble. They're they're set apart from the way people are able to normally live. But he's also ready by new birth, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by the gift of his word in our lives to enable by his own power the very things that he requires of us. 
The high standard of God's law can only be fulfilled by people who are flooded first by the matchless grace of Christ becoming a Lord, a King, and a Savior in that life. And then you're empowered to pursue the laws of God as they are given in a place like this. And you can look at them and say, I could never do this. I, I, knowing that I would commit adultery with my eye looking wrongly with lustful intent at a woman, why, that's an impossible standard. I don't know what to do with that. But then you understand the grace of God that promises forgiveness and promises new power to walk in new ways. And yes, you're going to fall on your face sometimes, but God is going to bring you through. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says this, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and he'll do this, purify for himself a people who are his own, who are eager to do what is good. God's all-supplying powerful grace works in a Christian against the standard that we look at and say, impossible, I can't do it. God says, I will carry you up to see my standard and then to see that Jesus Christ died to forgive you and your, your shortfall from that standard. Dr. Jim Boyce, late of Philadelphia, dying a decade or more ago, summarized the Sermon on the Mount by saying this quote from him, Here we learn it is not a new system of morality that we need, but we need to live a totally new life. God doesn't expect this morality to be reproduced by people who do not know Christ. But when people do know Christ and they do not strive for and give themselves to and pray for this morality to be at work in them, that's a tragedy because they do not know what God has called them to do. I'm not saying you're always going to recognize an authentic Christian the first moment you meet one. But over time, characteristics of belonging to Christ are going to be visible in lives, your life, lives of people you think very unlikely to show that kind of thing. Kingdom subjects, disciples who are born from above by the grace of God will come to display kingdom behavior. We are different from the world. We must not be ashamed of that. We must be willing to be shaped as God's workmanship, as those who indeed swim upstream by the calling of the high standards of our God. Jesus teaches here in Matthew 5 through 7 how his authentic disciples will speak, look, and act, and by his grace, he will provide all the power you need to become such a person. He will do it. Bow before him as 2018 begins. Do something better than any New Year's resolution. Give yourself heart and mind and spirit to Jesus, the true King, and become his subject. Father, thank you for this high calling. I pray for our pastors here as they develop this text in weeks to come. Would you Speak through the power of your word, which is the power of Jesus himself. 
Would you call all of us to a more focused, more concentrated, more obedient, more willing, more joyful discipleship with you? Pick us up when we fall down. Tell us that we've not failed completely. And send us on our way again with the assurance of your Spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus who spoke these things. Amen.